Thank you, Marco. Yes, I have a passion for all things liturgical and prayer, and it's really been my life's work in the Archdiocese of Perth. I've been in this role for over 25 years now. Um, through three or two, at least two archbishops and bishop, different bishops. So, um, but I see it in a very broad context. Okay, so I think prayer is a way of living. It's a lifestyle. Our whole sacramental celebrations are a way of living. It it affects our whole lifestyle. Now, I did ask the lady in my office to find a background for my slides that represented the Holy Spirit, and she came up with that which I quite like. It has light, it has movement, but it has no absolute structure because the spirit itself is free. Sometimes I'm not free, but the spirit is free. And so I think the role, the you know, when we talk about prayer and our sacraments in terms of, the, um, of our church, they are about giving us that freedom to listen to the Spirit through the words and through the actions. I'm going to start with a little piece of music which I've been quite drawn to and I've used it on several occasions now. Um, one was when we had a, um, a praise and worship experience for high school kids in the cathedral, which um, was wonderful. Bishop Houlihan was the main celebrant, so it was the Liturgy of the Word and the kids really entered into the singing, into the movement, and were into the drama around the gospel, okay, to unlock the spirit of the gospel that could then touch their lives. And I suppose the desire was when they left, they certainly would go out and take the message of that experience back to their schools. The second time I used it was the other night for um, the launch of our um, Lifelink launch, which is the main fundraising organisation in the Archdiocese for all our social services. And again, I use this because it fitted very well into what we are called to do. Okay, what we are all called to do. But at that occasion, there were representatives from all the various parishes in the Archdiocese who are commissioned by the Archbishop to go out. And this year, the theme is to hold out your hand, you know, to offer your hand to anyone you need. So it's a bit like boppy. So if you want to get up and no, that's not true. <laughs> but it's got a bit of energy to it. And that's again why I've chosen it for this evening. In the name of the Father, I baptize you. In the name of the Son, I baptize you. With the Holy Spirit, go out and spread the good news. I send you out on a mission of love. I send you out. On a mission of love, I send you out. On a mission of love, and know that I am with you always, until the end of the world. Well, it's time for us to become people with spirit. It's time for us. 
I don't know about you, but I'm ready to hit the streets, <laughs> to get out there on a mission of love. And that's really, in many ways, what the Plenary Council is about. Yes, it's about looking at, well, how can we better do that? How can we better be missionaries within the context of our own environment, our every everyday world? Okay, so, um, and I think there are some key words there. It's a mission of love. Okay, it's a mission of love. It's never going to be perfect. We're not going to have all the answers. And some of the things we might or I might want changed or reviewed may not happen. And that's okay. As long as together we are looking at becoming that community of love that is always on mission. And that comes through strongly in the Plenary Council papers. This is the agenda. It's a very simple agenda um, this evening. And... Um, how I came to it was I was asked to write a very brief paper for the um, uh, Brisbane uh, Liturgy magazine, which goes out quite broadly around Australia and also around the world. And it wasn't a commentary on uh, liturgy or prayer and worship in the um, plenary councils. It was more a summary of what was happening in what was coming through in these particular papers but it wasn't just about the one paper on prayerful and eucharistic what i did was i went through every single paper they're a great read really um 
every single paper and circled or underlined where it talked about sacrament, where it talked about prayer, where it talked about being Eucharistic people and so on and so on. Okay, so this is a little bit of an overview of how prayer and worship fits into all those six themes, but that, of course, means how it fits into everything we do in life. It's not just in one part of what we do of life. It affects everything that we do. And I think I might have mentioned earlier at the beginning here that, you know, our prayer life, our, our sacramental life is part of our lifestyle as Christians and as Catholic. It's not that's our prayer life and that's our Eucharistic life and then, of course, we go off and I do what we have to do. No, it's it's part of our lifestyle of how we live. Diana Alteri, who's here, helped me edit the, the actual... Um, article for the um, magazine and um, it was a great experience to do it for myself because I had to look at all the plenary material in order to do that. So they're the three areas I'd like to look at tonight. Participation, inclusion and sacraments form us and sustain us for mission. There's so much material in this document that we're obviously not going to touch tonight but if anyone needs a copy of the section on prayerful and Eucharistic I have made a copy of that for people if they would like it at the end. So like I said, I've taken quotes out of the document and I'm going to reflect on them a little bit in terms of how I see it working throughout the, uh, that section, prayerful and Eucharistic, how it works it all the way through these six papers. And the first um, quote up there is, the inseparable, inseparability of Christian mission, proclaiming the word, celebrating the sacraments and loving service to others is at the heart of the church. Okay, that's who we are. That's who we are. Now that comes out of the paper, paper on joyful, hope-filled and servant community. But when you look at that, where does our Christian mission come from? It comes from Jesus. He is the word. He is the utterance of God. It is Jesus showing us the way to live. Okay, so and showing us the way back to the Father. And the sacraments are part of that. Um, I remember um, some of my initial studies back in Boston. That was a wonderful time for me. I was a very young religious sister, um, and but it was a great opportunity to you know be able to study. I studied at Boston College, the Jesuit College there. But one of the things, or some of the things that started to open up to me then, and of course much more later on, is that when we talk of liturgy, okay, the church talks of liturgy, and that document will go up, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, the um, document on the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, published by Vatican II. It's not just about the Mass, okay? It's about all our sacraments. Okay, so when there's a marriage and there's a marriage ceremony, but it's not in a Mass, Jesus is present. And we'll talk about the presence of Jesus as well. But just coming back to this, when we say inseparability of Christian mission following Christ is proclaiming the word, that's proclaiming Jesus, celebrating the sacraments, which is again celebrating the life of Jesus within us and our community. Sacraments are always celebrated within the context of community. They're always celebrated with the the word and loving service to others is at the heart of the Christian church okay we go out to others I send you out on a mission of love go out there and be Jesus to others so participation 
I want to just have a little, um, I'm going to set the first heading. I found this clip from um, Archbishop Mark Holrich. He's done a series of material on, uh, you can get it on the, um, it's on YouTube, okay, and there's a whole series of clips and he takes apart all the different parts of the Mass and he does it really, really well. And I use some of those video clips often when I'm teaching because I sometimes work with teachers in the accreditation programs. But he's also done another um, couple of little um, YouTube clips as well. This one is about why Jesus matters. And it was actually a, um, oh, you know, um, not a Zoom. It was something like a Zoom that he did. And people could actually call in and ask questions. We're not going to enter into that part of it. But I think his outline of Jesus is central to understanding who we are eucharistically. I've seen a lot of things through those years. I'm going to move him on a little bit. Be anywhere. So let me know where you're watching. In fact, we did a test run only uh, a few days ago and, and we heard someone from, uh, quickly from someone from Canada. So uh, wherever you are, let me know where you're watching from. If you know some friends or family that would like to join in tonight, share this live stream post now. Uh, I'm going to share it now to my Facebook page uh, to invite my friends to, to join in with us. So the question then is, why does Jesus really matter in modern Australia? Someone who lived over 2,000 years ago. Now, I was Archbishop of Canberra before ever I became Archbishop of Brisbane and I remember one day there I had a, a group of young school leavers come to my place in Canberra for lunch. Two boys, two girls, outstanding young people and no free lunches at Archbishop's house. So I said to them towards the end of lunch, okay, at the end of your years of Catholic schooling, who, who do you say Jesus is? And it was a very good discussion, but at the end of it all, they agreed that Jesus was a great role model and they had to really strive their very best to imitate Jesus as a role model who lived long ago and good, gave good example. Now, I said to them, OK, that's fine, but if Jesus is nothing more than a role model, then it's, it's hardly worth the effort, Christianity. Um, We've got lots of good role models. Uh, we don't need another one in that sense. Uh, if Jesus is only a wise teacher, who cares? Why does he matter now? Because we've got lots of wise teachers. If Jesus is only a miracle worker, again, in the end, who cares? Because we have other wonder workers. Now, what makes the difference with Jesus is the fact that he died on the cross. Now, the death makes all the difference, but it's not the full story. Because what people like me believe is that Jesus was executed brutally. He was put in a tomb. They saw him buried. Stone rolled across the entrance to the tomb, and they thought that was the end of the penny section. That was it. Full stop. But then, three days later, they encounter him in a way that they had never imagined. 
He wasn't the same as before, but he wasn't just a ghost either, because he ate fish with them and that sort of stuff. So he'd entered some new dimension of existence, but, but he was real. This wasn't a figment of their imagination. And the stories that you find at the end of the Gospels of them bumping into Jesus, as it were, or he bumping into them, risen from the dead, are extraordinary stories. And they give you the clue to what the Christian life is all about. They're stories of encounter. Uh, he walks through a locked door into a room where they're gathered. And yet he is a body. Uh, he's there on a beach cooking fish for them for breakfast, this sort of thing. They're weird stories, and they're not the kind of stories you would make up if this was all just fiction or propaganda. They, have, they smack of, a, of reality, and they're, they're odd stories because the experience was odd. It was weird, and they didn't know what to make of it. Jesus matters there not just as a good example or a wise teacher or a wonder worker who lived all those years ago, Jesus matters because once he rises from the dead, he's no longer the prisoner of time and space. He's everywhere. You kind of drown in Jesus. So he, he is presence and power here and now. And the Christian life is all about encountering him as a kind of power in my life that I can't supply for myself. In the midst of my weakness, I encounter him as a kind of strength that turns even my weakness into his kind of strength. Or where I am wounded, he touches me as a kind of healing power and presence and the wound becomes a fountain. From that moment of encounter, I become a disciple. And this is crucial. In other words, someone who doesn't just respect Jesus or admire Jesus or like Jesus, someone, I become someone who absolutely uh, is determined to follow Jesus wherever he goes and he takes you into some strange places. Uh, I can say that I love him, which is weird language in one sense, given that I've never actually seen him. But, but in fact, the eye of faith does see him. And the ear of faith hears him. Because you see, the Holy Spirit opens the eye of faith and opens the ear of faith. And once, once you see him and hear him with the eye and ear of faith, you see him and hear him everywhere. There's nowhere that Jesus is not. John Paul II, when he first became Pope, wrote a remarkable letter to the Catholic people all around the world. It's called an encyclical letter. And in that letter, he said at one point, Christianity isn't really a religion in any conventional sense. He said it's an experience. And he's right. An experience of what? He says it's an experience of encounter. You encounter the risen Jesus here and now and wherever and whenever. And that moment of encounter is a moment of amazement, the Pope says. So the Christian life becomes an experience of amazement born of that encounter. And the amazement comes because it's only when you see and hear the risen Jesus that you really come to understand the full magnificent truth of who God really is. A lot of uh, the gods whom we worship are, are tin pot gods. 
But when you see the truth of who God really is, it's a magnificent and amazing thing. But it's only in seeing and hearing the risen Jesus that you discover who the human being really is uh, and who you really are. He is more yourself than you are. You want to know who you are, who I am? You better find your way to the risen Jesus because he tells us the real, the full truth of who God is and who the human being is, who you are, who I am. And that is an experience of amazement. So that's the Christian life. And that's why Jesus really matters to people like me, certainly, and I hope to you. So in the end, if I'm asked why Jesus matters in, in contemporary Australia, I, I'd give four reasons. The first is that when he dies on the cross, on the dark mountain, Jesus enters every dark corner and dark depth of the human heart and human history. Uh, and what that says is because he's everywhere in every darkness, there is nothing and nowhere and nobody that cannot be redeemed, that cannot enter a fantastic fullness of life. So that's the first reason. He's in every dark place and depth. The question is not, is he there, but how can I see him? The second reason I think why he, he really matters is that when he rises from the dead, scars shining like the sun, Jesus says to, to the cosmos that death doesn't have the last word. Now, there are many different kinds of death, and you see it in a place like contemporary Australia. There can be a spiritual death, an emotional death, the death that comes with addiction. It goes on and on. And very often we inhabit a world, even in Australia, where death does seem to have the last word. And here comes Jesus in the midst of all of that saying, not true. The truth is that death has its power, but it never has the last word. The last word in, in contemporary Australia and forever and everywhere belongs not to death, but to life. And that is a crucial truth. So he matters for that reason too. The third reason why I think Jesus really matters in contemporary Australia is because in him alone do we discover who God really is and who, who the human being really is. And in, in contemporary Australia, very often, we see the tiniest sliver of who God really is, or we see a false God, or we, we only glimpse the full truth of the human being and we think, that is that all there is? But here's Jesus speaking to us the full truth of who God really is and who the human being really is, and inviting us to see more. See, one of the things that makes life feel claustrophobic for a lot of people in Australia is that they don't see enough. They see too little. But Jesus is the one who in that moment of encounter opens the eye to see more and more and more. It's a kind of an infinite journey into an endless seeing. And that's another reason why he matters in a society which often doesn't see nearly enough. And then the fourth reason is that in, in the encounter with him, we discover that the nobodies or the losers or the least really do matter. Uh, 
because they're the ones in whom we find him. Remember what he says uh, in the last judgment scene in Matthew's gospel? Uh, as long as you did this to the least of my brothers and sisters, you did it to me, to those who seem to be losers. And there are a lot of people in a culture like ours that so values success who are regarded as losers, as nobodies. They don't matter. They're the least who can be kind of thrown away, part of the throwaway culture. So think of all of those people who are marginal, who don't matter, and that's where you'll find Jesus in contemporary Australia. And because he's there, they matter, and because he's with them, he really matters. All right, that was a little bit long, I know, but I think it's important that we understand that this is all centred on the person of Jesus. And in the prayerful and Eucharistic section, it says God is calling us to be a Christ-centred church that is prayerful and Eucharistic through being a community which participates, is formed and is on mission. And I think in a kind of roundabout way, Archbishop Mark Coleridge really said that it is about mission, it is about form being formed, and it is about knowing Jesus at the heart of what we do. In the prayerful and Eucharistic section of um, a paper, it says participation needs to include the realities of people's lives, be relevant and be life-giving. So how in our celebrations and our prayer um, experiences within the context of our parishes, within the context of our schools, within the context of our homes, do we make sure that, we, that it is relevant? I often say to the teachers, especially when it comes to Eucharist, with um, you know, young primary school kids and the kids all go off to Mass and they sit there and it becomes a little bit of a crowd control thing because remember we're talking children who don't really understand what is going on. And the first thing they need to do is prepare those kids before they get there. What's going to be in the readings, okay? What's the message of the gospel that Sunday? What are the prayers of the faithful that are going to be used that Sunday? Now, it's not always possible to have access to things like the prayers of the faithful, but we certainly have access to the scriptures that are read at Mass on a Sunday. And so how do we then take those ourselves and experience that, not just when we hear it at Mass on Sunday, but read it at the beginning of the week and imbibe it? I'm going to simple, you know, possibilities here, but it says participation needs to include the realities of people's lives, be relevant and be life-giving. One of the things I think that did come out in this paper also, um, Eucharistic and prevalent and Eucharistic, was that we, we really need to broaden our understanding of gathering for prayer. Eucharist is certainly central to who we are, without a doubt. But there are many other ways we can pray in community. And for you know, and we need to perhaps not reinvent the wheel, but look at how can we pray in small Christian communities or how can we pray in neighborhoods or, you know, different ways that we can relate to people's lives, not place them into an environment where it's foreign, it's not connecting with their lives. One of the things I teach when I talk about the Mass is, um, you know, at the beginning of the Mass, and we have what's called the Collect. It used to be the opening prayer of the Mass. It's the Collect. The rubric in there, just before the priest says, let us pray, and then there's silence, 
There is when every one of us, the rubric says, brings to the mass what is it that we need to pray for that day. Is it our family? Is it our own lives? Is it um, you know, people in distress? Is it somebody we know who's dying? That's the time. And the rubric is clear. We call to mind what we want to pray for in that Eucharistic celebration. The priest in that prayer then collects up all those prayers, prays the opening prayer, and that mass become that Eucharist becomes our Eucharist together. So participation is more than the administration, the pragmatic administration of talents. I think participation again, and it'll come up again when I look at the full conscious active participation, which also comes up in the document in the liturgy. And we thought everyone had to be doing something, you know, to be fully and consciously involved in a Eucharistic celebration. No, that's not what the documents, what the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy ever meant. Yes, there will be people that will be involved in different ministries, but full conscious active participation is exactly what I was talking about. How do we prepare ourselves to go to that celebration of the Mass on a Sunday? Do we read the Gospels and use them as a reflection during the week to prepare ourselves? And it becomes, as I said, part of our life and our lifestyle. Um, it is responding fully to the particular graces given to each person in the unique circumstances of our life and in the needs of the community. I mean, you could also, and that comes from prayerful and Eucharistic when it talks about, you know, the responding to the different graces, that probably come, that would come also into the understanding of the hierarchy of ministries as we know them in the church. Different people have been given different graces. They have been called to different ministries that then become the whole and the community. Overall, there's a strong desire not to be merely spectators but active participants, and that comes up in the prayerful and Eucharistic um, uh, section of the Plenary Council papers as well. Uh, I think it is easy sometimes to, to go along and just go to church, you know, or be there or whatever, and then go home. I think we're being called to more than I don't think. I know that in actual fact, through the Plenary Council papers and also even just the, the understanding of participation in the church is so much more than that. It is about mission. It is about mission. It is about inclusion. It is about participation. So we need to be a little bit careful that we don't narrow it down. And I think Marco said something at one point about sometimes we just see one area rather than that's why reading all the six papers, which is not, you know, it's not earth shattering, but that prayer and Eucharist becomes part of our whole life. We're not spectators in terms of the lives of the people we interact with. Jesus wasn't. Jesus was never a spectator, ever. He was eating a meal with somebody. He was having a conversation with someone. He was healing someone. He was never a spectator. So participation in the context of the liturgy is is what, what that's what it, that's what we're called to do. This echoes, of course, the call of the Vatican documents, which I've already mentioned. Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. Remember I mentioned at the very beginning of this, sometimes we can narrow what we think liturgical celebrations might be to is the Mass. It is certainly central to who we are. But the church gives us a wide variety of liturgical celebrations with ritual outlines. 
And sometimes we think with those ritual outlines, there's only one way you can do it. And that's not true either. The priest often will have different ways of being able to present those um, ritual outlines or it might allow him to use different words in that, um, in that ritual to engage the community in some way so it's relevant to their lives. But the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy um, clearly pointed out to us there are many presences Yes, there's the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of the minister, but especially under the Eucharistic species. So Christ is present in the minister. We call that in persona Christi. You've probably heard that before. It is Christ who is acting there on, 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 for us. Okay, The priest becomes the person of Christ, especially under the Eucharistic elements. The bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. They're transformed. They look the same, but they're transformed because of the words, the actions, and what we believe. That transformation then, when we receive the body of Christ, invites us into a form of transformation. It says, how can you be transformed? A little experience and I know we're going to run out of time, but so much to do. Anyway, that video clip was too long. Okay, so sorry, video man, I've just messed it up. Okay, so um, a little experience of that was, um, you know, being transformed, I suppose, Eucharistically, or being transformed by prayer. I've been a religious sister since I was 18 years old. I grew up in religious life. Um, look, there's been ups and downs. Everybody's life has ups and downs. You know, some days you like what you're doing, some days you don't. I ran away once, I went back. You know, that's life, isn't it, sister? It's never perfect. No matter what, what life you've got, whether you're married, single or a religious sister. But I do think the Eucharist, I know, I don't think, the Eucharist and prayer has shaped who I am because it's centred on the person of Jesus Christ. One of the little examples was my dad was dying of dementia. He'd been very ill and I was quite close to dad. I was very close to dad, as Diana would know, my friend here. Um, and we were at the hospital and my sister was very, very upset. And we weren't getting on all that well. Sisters, especially baby sisters, can be tricky to deal with anyone who's got younger siblings. Anyway, all of a sudden she was blaming me that dad was dying. Like she was very aggressive. It became my fault. I can see you smiling. You've experienced that. It becomes your fault. Are you the eldest? Yep, it's always the eldest fault when something happens in a family. That's my experience. And she was so aggressive. And as you can see, I'm not lost for words. You know, if you put me in front of a camera and you give me a, a PowerPoint, I'll just keep talking and, you know, share information. There were two things I could have done that day. The first one was I was hurting and I was in pain. And I was ready to lash out too. But I didn't. I stopped and I listened to her pain. Now, why did I listen to her pain? And I'm certainly no saint, please, no. But because that's what I, what I believe. That's what I've grown up with. That's what the person of Jesus invites me to do. That's God's wish that we listen to someone's pain. It didn't take away my pain. It certainly didn't take away my anger either. I let it out with somebody else afterwards. But um, I listened to her pain, you know. And I think um, that's, to me, also the presence of Jesus as well. I don't even know how I got onto that point. But, you know, that's the transformation. That's what I'm talking about. That's the transformation that 
I've experienced in my life and other people will experience it differently. Jesus is also present in the sacraments, okay, in all the sacraments, whether it's the Mass or not, whether it's a marriage is celebrated with a Eucharist or a funeral is celebrated with a funeral Mass. Jesus is present there when baptisms are celebrated, when wedding rituals are celebrated, when funeral rituals are celebrated, because he says, when the Holy Scriptures are read in the church or at our rituals, I am the word. I am the utterance of God speaking in this celebration. Also, the fathers of the church in Vatican II reminded us that when the church prays and sings, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Okay? So Jesus is present in so many ways in our lives and it's about listening to that presence. Um, ensure that the faithful take part fully aware of what they are doing actively, are doing actively engaged in the right and enriched by its efforts. That was also a challenge of prayerful and Eucharistic. And I think that's where it comes into, um, you know, it does come into formation, you know, along the way. Uh, it, there's so many possibilities for it now. Marco, of course, does a mini series on, um, you know, on Eucharist and things like that. So it is about being formed and understanding the celebration and what is happening there. The Eucharistic prayers are beautiful. Um, just reading them, we tend not to. We leave them to the priests and understanding, you know, the calling of the Holy Spirit in the Eucharistic prayer and so on. So again, um, the when it comes to participation in the prayerful and Eucharistic paper, it says, you know, ensure that the faithful take part fully aware of what they were doing, actively engaged in the right. There's some great resources online now as well. As I said, um, Father Archbishop Mark Coleridge has done a great little series on all the different parts of the Mass. Very accessible, easily accessible. If you've got a, um, you know, if you get access to a computer and if you can't figure out how to do it, get the grandchildren. They'll find it for you straight away. Okay. The church earnestly desires that all the faithful should be led to that full, conscious and active participation of the liturgy. It is their right and duty by reason of their baptism. We are not spectators. In the Eucharistic prayers, the words I, that we hear in the Eucharistic prayers are we, our and us. The priest does not talk I. He says, take away my sins, before he said, when he, at one part of the Mass, when he, you know, washes his hand, take away my sins. Um, can't remember the next word because I don't say Mass often enough. No. But he, um, it's clear in the Eucharistic prayer, we have we, our, and us. You know, this is our prayer, not the priest's prayer. It is our prayer that we pray together with the priest. And it's, it's really our right, in a way, to be able to participate in liturgical ministries as well. Um, I'll see if I can get to the net, that Sacrosanctum Concilium. I'll just leave this because um, that's about participation. We just inclusion, we'll go on to that. So some of the areas of inclusion I just want to touch on briefly, okay, was inclusion of all. This comes into the participation. It leads on from the participation. Women in the church represented in leadership roles, including in liturgy, okay? So those were very strong themes that actually came through in the prayer Eucharistic paper, but they did come through in all the other papers as well quite strongly. And I go back to the inclusion of all or participation of all, I mean, I think that's where we look at, well, how do people participate in the liturgy? How are they included? A little example was, just 
letting you know what happens before the collect. This is your Eucharistic celebration. You bring your prayers to this celebration. Another way where people can be included is to, you know, acknowledge what is happening in your community through your prayers of the faithful or what is happening in your world. That's another form of inclusion and participation because one of the members of the community will read those. Um, other forms of inclusion, I think, are in the various ministries we have. Um, altar servers, we have senior altar servers who I do the training for, which are men and women who can serve at the altar and do everything that an acolyte does and not need to be instituted as an acolyte. We have that ministry here in Perth. We have readers who are part of our liturgy. Okay, But the full participation or inclusion comes from when the whole body sits, the whole body stands, the whole body responds. That's the full participation inclusion. Okay, we are one body and it's about knowing and it's even considered, you know, participation inclusion is about knowing the responses to the mass and when to say them. We become the one body of Christ. Now, the women in the church, I've certainly got, you know, a slide somewhere in here about ordination of women and it talks about what the Pope has said about that. It talks about also the diaconate and it refers back to a paper um, that was presented, I think, in the, was it the Amazon for that one? I'm not sure. The Amazon on the diaconate of women. Look, I'm not getting the feeling that door's being absolutely closed. Historically, it's all possible. It will be one that will come up. But it doesn't necessarily, I, th I think, like I've been a woman in the church for a long time, 18 years, you know, I entered religious life. I quite like what I do and I've learned to like myself. It's taken a long time, but I do. Um and I do feel, I've, I've been privileged enough to feel connected with the church, but I've had to work at it too. There is no doubt about it. Women in terms of church really do need to be represented more. And I would strongly agree with that. And I do think that looking at the papers, all the plenary papers, and even the plenary paper on prayerful and Eucharistic, that will come up. And um, I, I can only pray, I know some wonderful as you will, some wonderful women in our community, wonderful women in our church who do great things. Now, they don't necessarily want to be, you know, in leadership roles. They want to do what they're doing and do it well. But we must always be open to inviting inclusion and participation that all men and all women who are capable and desire to be a significant part and are needed definitely to be a significant part of leadership in our church. So that's lay people, lay men and women. We need to look, and I was talking to, is it um, Graham? Yeah, great. I was talking to Graham earlier, and he's quite passionate about that too, which was really good. So I think the council will deal with that well. I think the plenary council will open that up. It's not going to happen overnight, but I do think it's there's very strong calling for that in the plenary papers. Um, represented in leadership roles included in the liturgy. Um, I'll try and finish off now, Marco. So I'm going so much you could do. Um, I. I was looking this afternoon at a couple of documents. I'll see if I can find my, um, that was about the Amazon. 
Okay, I was looking at some of the documents that I use to teach from or when I'm preparing material that are the background material for my teaching. Um, things like Ministerium Quatum, which was, you know, that was um, promulgated by the Vatican in 1972. That opened up the possibility of what's called acolytes. We know them and it is only men. We can't change that. But we also have in this archdiocese senior altar servers who are women. You know, they can um, they can be of any age. They've got some, uh, junior altar servers and senior altar servers, and I've run a number of courses, uh, workshops on that. They do a lot of training as well, and then go into their parishes. They wear an alb, just like an acolyte does, and they can do everything an acolyte does if an acolyte isn't present, remembering that there's a sort of... We have to share the ministries. You don't have four acolytes who are doing nothing on a sanctuary. You have one, you know, or maybe two. So it's not a matter of putting on, you know, your alb, and I can see one of our acolytes here this evening, you know, and sitting up there because you've become an acolyte. It's about ministry and it's about service. Ministerium Quatum started to open up that, the whole notion of lector also, which you could be, um, became a ministry, capital M, I suppose, but it was only allowed for men to become lectors. So the bishops of Australia never took that on. Okay, so it's always stayed open that men and women could be readers at Mass. We did take on the whole notion of acolytes, and there's a whole history to that. But we've also moved a lot with that as well. And look, there's a group of very good men, very good laymen, who are committed to their parishes and the service of their parishes. There's also a document, Instruction on Certain Questions Regarding Collaboration of the Non-Ordained and, and Faithful and Sacred Ministry of the Priesthood. This is when things started to get a little bit blurred. How could the faithful participate a little more in terms of the actual ritual celebrations? So that started to open up in 1970, uh, then in 1988, we had a document called Sunday Celebrations in the Absence of a Priest. Now, a lot of our regional areas here in Perth and all around Australia and the world, there just aren't enough priests. So that made it possible that if there were deacons either, that lay men or women could lead religious services in those areas. And there's actually no reason why a layman or woman couldn't lead a liturgy of the word that is outside of Eucharist, okay? That's all quite possible too. And as I mentioned earlier, maybe they're the things we need to look at, that it's not just Eucharist people can go to, that's central and it's, we're committed to that. But how do we offer other prayer experiences? And a liturgy of the word might be one of them. So that has been a wonderful document for the church because, um, you know, we hope and pray there will always be priests available, but in our regional areas, it is so spread out. Then the general instruction of the Roman Missal, um, uh, the Vatican Council, and um, sorry, from the Vatican in 2012, that outlined all the ministries as well. And of course, the Code of Canon Law is very clear about things like only priests can give a homily, okay, because I noticed in the documents it does talk about preaching. But there can be lay preachers for other situations as well. Um, and also, even with the Code of Canon Law, depending on how you read it, the bishop himself does have quite a little bit of leeway there. Normally they won't use it. It does say the homily is only for the priest eucharistically. But there are so many other possibilities for lay preaching and lay teaching as well. Oh, God, I could go on for another hour, but I'll stop. <laughs> so sorry. Um, I always over-prepare. I'm a little bit passionate about what I do. I no, 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 no. I'm ready to go. No, um, and but I also think um, 
I'll leave the papers on prayer for the Eucharistic. It's um, it, it, our church is never going to be perfect. It needs to be accountable, but it's never going to be perfect. But we have to pray, I believe, I have to pray, that this opportunity will open up, just open up. I love the idea of, of, of you know, what is it? I send you out on a mission of love. You know, go out there and spread the good news and be, as the Pope once said, put a smile on your face, be a happy Christian. Okay, thanks, Marco, I'm done. <laughs> Thank you.